What is going on, everybody? Welcome to the 440 Guitar Podcast. I am your host, Jarrell Powell. Thank you so much for tuning up. You can catch the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and uh, anchor.fm forward slash 440. Uh, I think it's called Podcasters for Spotify. I think you should be able to go to that same link. It'll take you there. Happy 100th episode. This is the 100th episode here of the podcast, uh, which which is really cool. Um, I didn't know it would go this far and I've had the, you know, the, the been blessed to speak with a lot of really uh, talented folks and, um, being able to hear these conversations, you know, and, uh, just the same type of guitar mindset and just artistry mindset, just really, really great. So I really appreciate the community and whatnot. So, uh, if you have any questions, you can email me at the 440 podcast at gmail.com or send me a direct message on Instagram. Follow the Instagram if I didn't say that already. And uh, today, for the 100th episode, we have the pleasure of speaking with uh, an incredibly talented uh, talented artist here. And uh, he has played with everybody, damn near. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of information here from the uh, his website. Uh, where it says uh, he graduated from uh, Boston's prestigious Berkeley uh, College of Music, uh, the world's most formo- uh, foremost institution for study of jazz and modern American music. In the spring of 87, shortly after, returned to his native New York uh, to embark on a career as a jazz guitarist that afforded him the opportunity to collaborate with such legendary artists, including Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Quincy Jones, Ray Charles, Herbie Hancock, Carmen Ray, Gladys Knight, Burr Bacharach, Jimmy Smith, Clark Terry, Shirley Horn, Wynton Marsalis, Bradford Marsalis, Joe Williams, Stanley Turrentine, and his and uh, the mentor, the great George Benson. Uh, and there's probably more in this list as well. Um, so I am humbled to have uh, Mark Whitfield here on the show. How you doing, Mark? Uh, doing just fine. Thank you. Congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. And I, I feel uh, pretty special to be here for this occasion. I had no idea that's, that's what was going on. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, the, the 50th episode, I spoke to the guitarist from The Roots. That's uh, <laughs> for the Captain Kirk. So very honored to speak with you as well for the 100s. So. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, very, very neat. Very neat. Uh, so uh, here on uh, the 440 Guitar Podcast, just to go right into it, you know, we're really big on origin stories, how people got to where they are today. Um, and I tend to ask kind of this uh, open question as far as tell me about your earliest memory of music. Oh, well, so that's um, really easy to share. My parents were born, uh, I was born late, late in life to my folks. They were born in 1920 and 1923. And so they were huge jazz fans both uh, uh, because you know, jazz was the music of the day and also because they had a great appreciation for the music itself. Uh, fans of Duke Ellington and Jimmy Lunsford and Count Basie. And so I was a, I grew up on Long Island. They took me to a concert hall called the West Bay Music Fair, one of those uh, theaters in the round with the stage fans around. I saw Mercer Ellington conducting the Ellington Orchestra and, and Count Basie. I saw Oscar Peterson's trio with Elvis Gerald and Joe Pass. I saw a lot of his music before I was 10 years old. Um, for my seventh birthday, uh, which was 50 years ago next week, my uh, brother gave me the guitar that our sister had given to him as a homecoming present from Vietnam. He, gave, he couldn't play it, but he gave me the guitar and his Lightning Hopkins anthology of the blues record. And so that was uh, the beginning of my personal connection to uh, music, as, as, you know, as, as opposed to uh, um, 
from the point of view of, of a young fan. I can say I can say this. You say, well, you're awfully young to experience it and have some. That's the only way to uh, experience jazz and classical music as a young person is to it, it, and have an appreciation for it is to be in the presence of it because you it's something mesmerizing and captivating even to a young person to a very young person but watching someone supremely skillful at what they do execute at such a high level and still translate soul and emotion and all these things and the larger the ensemble the more fascinating it is because they all work together as sort of one big unit and as a five or six or seven year old kid Somehow that, that 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 struck me, and also I was fortunate enough to to be you know in a public school system on Long Island that hadn't been depleted of its arts programs. Of course, this is in the early in the seventies, so that was still not quite a thing, right? Uh, um, so I, but you know, I, I guess I looked like I had uh, like my hands had some had some instinctive uh, um, connection to the instrument, and my parents got me some lo some lessons at the local music store. Then I started playing the upright bass, mostly classical music in the fourth grade, and I played the saxophone and so forth. Um, but the most poignant and significant uh, memory from that time is me seeing George Benson on a PBS special with the Boston Pops playing the music from his Breezen record live. And I think um, wow. my, you know, uh, my mother said this wasn't the first. I remember I, I was looking at, you know, back in those days, yeah. Big TV with a small screen, right? So it looks like me to the screen, just mesmerized watching George interact with his group and and and, and the pops behind him and so forth. Uh, and my mother said that as, that, uh, as a very little boy, uh, the first time she seen me do that was the Ed Sullivan Show and Ike and Tina Turner were on, and she said uh, when, when Tina and the Ike gets started doing the thing where they shake their hips with the short skirts and the frills and you're on. He said, like, I got so close. I left my nose and went on the TV screen. And I couldn't have been but four or five. She's like, oh, God, we're in trouble with this one. Uh, 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 but it was like, so my, my being captivated by George at that point, uh, um, was it was it was that it was it was that that's the best apparently me yeah. five-year-old me and tina turner and ten-year-old me and george benson like, just, <laughs> uh, um and so i uh had no intention of pursuing music as a career i'm the only one in my family right? i come from lawyers and my uh, uh, my sisters uh, you know a stockbroker my, you know, my parents were father's a cop mother was a nurse uh, um but my parents uh, uh believed that um being a well-rounded individual uh, especially coming from the African-American experience, meant that we had, we had to take uh, um, special note and, and, and be, be mindful to be uh, opportunistic to, to ex experience everything that was available to us, no matter what you thought your engagement might be. Become exposed to everything. Don't limit yourself to the familiar, uh, because that you know that, that's just that's, that's a prison of your own making, right? So they, uh, I didn't understand that in a way that I could have expressed it at that age, but it was it was the way that we all lived. And so I felt natural to me. And so I, I uh, played music, I studied martial arts, I you know, I was into math and science, all these things, whatever was available. Um, but there was something special about uh, um, the, ex my, the extension of my personality into the guitar industry. Mm -hmm. I uh, admittedly, I'll say right now, I've hardly ever found the loss for words. But when it happens, <laughs> on occasion, right, uh, um, especially in moments, you know, in, in uh, melancholy moments, uh, difficult moments, I found that I could relieve, my, relieve a certain amount of, of, of um, pain and, uh, and so forth with my just by playing, and I emote that way.
And I did that before I, uh, I was doing that before I realized what it was and before it was worth listening to, before, you know, just a connection. Uh, and then uh, um, I played upright bass and orchestra and I started playing in the jazz band in my high school in Long Island. Uh, and I won a, a scholarship, a scholarship award, a, you know, a monetary scholarship award for, you know, to the Berkeley School of Music um, at a uh, high school jazz competition at the school that they sponsored at Berkeley. Mm. It didn't mean anything to me then. It was nice, but I had no intention of pursuing that. One of my brothers had gone to Georgetown for undergrad law school. I wanted to follow his footsteps. And my brothers, by the way, were all born in the 1940s. Mm. So they were more than 20 years older than me. And, and, and so uh, they were more like uncles and heroes. You know what I mean? So mm. it was uh, it was no no competition. I just wanted to be one of them, you know. Right. Uh, uh, and then my parents retired when I finished uh, 10th grade. I spent that summer studying sciences and math at Georgetown, and they moved to Seattle. And so I moved to Seattle, and I had, uh, had the opportunity to skip a grade and graduate after one year. But while I was there, they, they, I, I joined the jazz band. They didn't have a guitar, play, a guitar player in the high school jazz band there. It was my first chance to play guitar in the organized school ensemble. I was pretty manic about the way that I practiced. I was way really into it. And I won a second scholarship award at a, at a Berkeley-sponsored high school festival competition, high, high, uh, uh, high school jazz band competition in Westminster County. And I convinced my parents on that note to sort of let, give me a shot. Like I had, I had you know, I graduated at 16. So I've got a year to kind of play around. That was my argument. Let me go to Berkeley and try it and see what happens. And, and you have to remember Berkeley now is this, you know, even as you read my bio, I kind of chuckled, you know, Berkeley is this, is this world-renowned, prestigious institution with, you know, with, with uh, fingers in every, you know, sister schools all over the world. Berkeley in 1983 was three buildings and a raggedy performance hall. Uh, uh, um, and, all, and although it was, it had, it had produced some of, you know, our, you know, the last century's greatest musicians, it wasn't even a, it wasn't even a school with, with a state accreditation for academics. Like you could graduate with a degree from Berkeley and apply for a master's program somewhere else, and they would make you fulfill additional academic requirements before allowing you into the program. It was really just an intensive music program, but I mean, it also was just about jazz and and and, and intellectual uh, uh, jazz related music. So it, it wasn't putting on pop stars. Mm. You know, so you know, so there was it wasn't like, well, I'm gonna send my kid there, they're gonna be a, you know, be an American Idol one day. No, they weren't. They're gonna yeah. be a nerd who can play who can play <laughs> and get Cyrene Frank Zappa. Like that's that's who we're gonna be. Yeah. Uh, um, and so uh, uh but I was um I was convinced that I, if I found uh, a place for myself in the music, uh I would find a way because my parents and my, my family they you know they progressed to the point where they weren't singularly focused on my on my financial future. You know, it wasn't like, well, you just got to make money at all costs. You know, that wasn't the point of all that well-rounded education. Was, you know, but, but don't do something and sacrifice security and then regret. Make sure that whatever it is you're going to do, you are mindful of the path that takes you and, and what comes along with that. You know, mm -hmm. you sit around looking at my brother's driving Mercedes, and I got an old VW bug, and I'm like, I did the wrong thing. You know, I could have done whatever, right? And so, uh, um, but I got to Berkeley, and the first week I wanted to quit because they were, and there was a thousand guitar players there, and they were all better than me. Mm -hmm. But I could not bear at that point 
to to confess to my parents that I didn't think I could handle. Mm. So I and it wasn't because uh, I wanted to prove them wrong. They, there was there wasn't a right and wrong. Mm. It's just they. I, I wasn't. I couldn't face myself knowing that it meant that much to me that I wanted to go there, and I was willing to give up that fast. So I, I worked hard. I, I made, you know, I, I made friends. I, I practiced. I hadn't, I hadn't played guitar in an organized ensemble or studied music theory beyond, you know, high school classical music. So I was, I had so much ground to to make up, uh, but. You know, music theory is math. I'm good at math. Thank goodness. And so all I needed, I mean, I, I'm, no, I'm no master mathematician, but I was, but I, 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 it made sense to me. So I, I could sort of do that quickly. And then uh, um, uh, uh, I, pra- I love to practice. Most, some people just like to play. I, I you know, I, I love to play, but I also love to just sit in the room with the guitarist, you know, and, and, and work on things and, and, and progress. And, and so, um, I, you know, in, in a year's time, I increased my small scholarship award to a full scholarship. So I returned the following year, and then, and then I realized, okay, maybe, I, maybe maybe this can actually work for me. You know, and from that point on, it became my parents' idea that I went there because I was doing well. <laughs> 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 we, we always knew it was going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, I, but I, you know what? I was happy to have brought them over to the dark side. You know, that's what it took. <laughs> Uh, so I know you, were, you started out as my earliest impression, my earliest yeah. but that's where they started. And this is where they took me. So I'll stop there and let you take us to the next place. Oh no, not a problem. No, I think that's that's great. This kind of that picture you painted there. I was gonna. There's such a fascinating for 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 your point in life and what you've experienced. There's a I find a fascination to it because you've you know when you were young you know you've you've seen these masters that now you know people today generations today they only see them through youtube you know you're seeing you know seeing the um you know joe pass and you know all these incredible players you know and even even just like on television for live you know live performance and whatnot and being able to see how this, you know, how these, you know, these folks do what they do and then just kind of like through time, you know, witnessing just how music has changed and whatnot. It kind of reminds me of like a Miles Davis situation where it's like he, you know, literally progressed through like jazz and all of its changes and everything and just seeing how music has changed. And um, and it's interesting when you talk about Berkeley, you know, because I've, I've talked to, I've had a few friends from Berkeley that I, I, I ended up meeting in, in L.A. or whatnot and, and uh, I talked to them as far as like how like, like it's still a like super you know uh, prestigious you know and he, and he's like and a, a lot of a lot of Berkeley students now at least that have been college are like you know what used to be they said now it seems like they just want anyone with money at these days like it's, well, it's that's so fast to turn right it, it went from, it went from this place where like it wasn't too long before I got there mm-hmm. that Keith Jarrett had been expelled for retuning pianos and quarter tones so he could mm-hmm. play microtonal music in the piano practice rooms. Like, that happened not to, you know, it was that. And then, you know, uh, um, like Kevin Eubanks went to Berkeley in the 70s. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't let him take his final proficiency, proficiency exams and graduate because he, he stopped using a pick after his third year and play and created his own thing. Like, it was a very rigid, disciplined school. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, you know, 
Berkeley is actually Lee Burke. He he was he, he's the lawyer who represented Joseph Schillinger. It mm-hmm. was the Schillinger School of Music until until he died, and then the Burke and then Lawrence and Alma Burke took over the school, and then suddenly the lawyer it's named after him. Like it's not even a place, oh, right? Wow. So I mean, so um, but the but the you know and the, the gentleman William Levitt, who's the godfather of of the Berkeley Guitar Method, was still the dean of the department when I got there, mm-hmm. and this dude was. He was a drill sergeant. He had there was there was no room for uh, a unique personal interpretation of the exercises of the scales. The fig, you know, the figurings were written out. Uh, uh, scales, chord voicings. These things were this 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 was a very a very disciplined method of learning, and uh, um, they only started to loosen up on that after William Levitt passed. In his long time uh, second in command, Larry Beyond became the guitar department and realized that they were alienating so many talented individuals. You know, Mike Stern had gone there and John Schofield went there. Captain Feeney, he auditioned and they offered him a job on his audition day. So I guess that <laughs> he, he didn't need to go to school after all. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, there were so many, uh, um, they realized that opening the door uh, to allowing some unique perspectives was only going to increase, uh, 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 was only going to add to, you know, what the school had to offer artistically, yeah. right? Uh, you know, it's, you know, but then, uh, you know, as Boston, as the area uh, started, as you know, the, you know, these places, you know, you these places uh, that we live, uh, um, you, you know, these urban areas, they were the same sort of you know, those low-income slum areas for so long. And then all of a sudden, it's like people woke up and go, wait a minute, this is, the Hell's Kitchen is the west side of Manhattan. We don't need slums. Then we need an even markets, you know. And, and, and back then, with Berkeley, it's like, why do we have, it's, 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 the, it's the most beautiful area in Boston, it's right by the commons. And all of a sudden, Berkeley was in, was, was in, in jeopardy of, being, of, the, of the buildings being bought out the school disappear. So, you know, so they went from, okay, we're going to expand a little bit to, oh, my God, if we don't do something, you know, uh, these other uh, the universities and the buildings and, and Dunkin' Donuts are going to put us out of business, right? We, we won't be able to compete. And so uh, um, there's never, from, and this, and I say this, you know, I went back to teach at Berkeley for a short, short time, just because my son's went there, I, I, you know, and, I, and, and the community, I, I live in Jersey, the community, uh, and I don't have any, any uh, sort of fun other connection to the school, but I do understand understand it from this from this point point of view. Uh, um, in order for the school to remain, they had they had to do something, and it's hard to bring people in who are capable of uh, uh, turning the business around, mm. but but aware enough and sensitive enough to the original mission that they don't turn the turn the turn the business around and go too far, mm. and so which you know. You, you need you need a hundred dollars. You make five hundred dollars, and someone tells you you can make a thousand. Well, shit! If we make a thousand, it'll be a long time before we need that next hundred dollars. Before you know it, Berkeley went from a place that was starting to open up to broader musical ideas to a place that was pandering to anyone who could pay twenty thousand dollars a year for the kid to go to school, thirty thousand dollars a year, and now it's a hundred thousand. It's you know, I mean. Uh, um, yeah. And and they, you know they bought buildings and institutions and, and now you know Back Bay is a Berkeley city. Like it's literally every you know and, and 
there are people now that will go there and still enroll there as college freshmen who will graduate and get a job and play music there and live in the Berkeley community and, until they retire. And I, I, I know people have said, better, better. Good, bad, or indifferent, it exists, right? Mm -hmm. And so here's, here's the only thing for all, for all of those people, all of us who would say, well, now the school just caters to uh, people. It doesn't mean, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of hundreds of students who have no money, who, who are awarded scholarships, who go and work hard and graduate or leave when they want and have gone to great careers. The information and the institution is there for those who are willing to, who want to take advantage of it. Yeah. It's not accessible to everyone. But mm -hmm. neither is Julia, neither is, neither is NYU. Not, is, is, you know, you, ha you have to find a way. But I've seen lots of people wearing $500 sneakers who are worried about paying their rent. Yeah. We, you know, but I got those, you know, I got this cut. We, we always find a way to do the things we want. Yeah. And, and while I'm one of those people who feels like collegiate and, you know, higher education should be free or at least affordable, it isn't. But we can't stand around and go, we're, we're going to be dumb or untrained because it's not. Right. That's the thing. Forget the BMW, you go to college, right? <laughs> so, so I, you know, I understand and I agree with what they're saying, but that's not up to us. Mm. And I mean, as students or people, we, you know, so we, we, got, we have to find a way to succeed. And uh, rather than just get on the soapbox, I make myself, and I know a lot of musicians like myself, Jeff Watson and, and Bradford, you know, we, we make ourselves accessible. Like I teach at a, at a, I teach in, in Jersey City. I do a jazz lecture. I teach four guitar students uh, 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 who are near beginner level at a, at a local university uh, where they have very little funding. And um, I and you know and and I and these kids are like, who's coming here to teach? Uh, uh, you know, and I and for most of my students with their first lesson, they apologize because they don't even think they're good enough to take lessons with me. Mm. But I, you know. That, that's what I do as opposed to uh, um, standing on the sidelines, you know, uh, uh, screaming about how these uh, powerful institutions don't do enough for the underprivileged. So I can do something. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you know, and, and you know, and I, I know I'm getting waxing way philosophical right now, but the point is people say the world, people, the world changes every minute. It's just, you know, I, you know what doesn't have to be a major change or, yeah. or colossal to make a difference. You know, I'm sure there are th people, someone's going to hear us see this and it will change something about them. I, there, are, there are so many moments uh, that I experienced as a young person that changed me, mm. you know, or, or had an impact on me and inspired me to change, right? So how you look at it however you want. So that's what we do. You know, we, we make the changes we can make. We, we do we, the difference we can make, the difference we can make. And, uh, and I couldn't do any of this stuff if I was poor, like if I was struggling to survive myself. So I take advantage of the opportunities I have to do things with, 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 with this resources to build. Because I, you know, I'm I'm never going to be a pop star, but I I, I want to live well and I want to enjoy the music I make and I want to share. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are ways, yeah. and, and we should be grateful for the institutions that exist and find ways to make a difference when we can. Yeah. I think it, you said something really powerful too, as far as for the, the students that you were teaching and how, how they, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're sharing this information, you're teaching them, even though like maybe they feel that like, they said like, like, I don't even know if I'm good enough, you know, cause I feel like there's, 
there's a very interesting and, and i'm more of a like I, i'm a jazz i mean he's jazz enthusiast you know like, there's so much more for me to learn always like it's like what um what was it terrace martin he said you're a student till you die so like <laughs> you know so like there, there's there's so much more for me to learn but I, i'm a jazz enthusiast definitely and i always feel like there's some folks where they they almost create this kind of uh gatekeeping almost type of behavior because it's like they 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 hone they they recognize that this craft is so like you know it's it's you know it's like american you know, american music right it's an amazing thing incredibly complicated you know um when you really lean in or just very intricate more than versus like outside looking in but then for folks that want to get into it you know there's seen i've, I've seen these these uh, situations or just how certain people talk where it's kind of like a gatekeeping thing where it's like no it just has to be this or you know whatnot and just not able to really wanting to share you know what i mean and so i think for someone such as yourself who you've seen you've it's like i've I've played with some of the most notable people in music that are in history books and, you know, and that, and that people are looking up to and you've seen the changes and things and just like, yeah, just share, you know, like share, share it with, you know, share it, you know, share it and, and being able to, to really let people in, you know, I think it's a really great, I think it's a really great thing. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm always, I'm always in for, like you said, you know, as far as being able to educate anyone, regardless of their income level, I think that's such an important important thing as far as yeah you can play you can play you know you, you can play this and, and maybe you not be as technically skilled as x y and z but everyone has their own thing like like no one plays like the little Thelonious monk and the Lord is it's him you know what i mean you can you can hear him on the radio and i didn't see him you're like that's the Monk. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know and, and not only are you absolutely correct but it has a historical uh, um it has historical relevance, you know. I I, I teach uh, early, I teach an early a graduate course, graduate level course. It's called Early Jazz History. Basically, I teach from 1600 to uh, 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 to 1947, and then I teach a jazz history course, which goes from 1890 to 1970, right? Um, you know, and for the early jazz history, because we, we go back to 1500. Sorry, my apologies, but we have a timeline. I created these timelines and it's year or period and then some sort of musical uh, 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 situation that occurs at this time and and and, uh, and also a parallel uh, um, non-musical historical event just to create uh, a comparison and some sort of level some sort of gauge for relevance 1817 mississippi becomes a state Congo Square in New Orleans, which is still a part of the U.S., Congo Square is established as a place, legal place, where slaves, slaves who are still slaves, slaves at the time, 1817, can gather to sing and dance for three hours a day. So now, Mississippi becomes a state. At the same time, they've established a place where we're going to finally let these slaves go and sing and dance. Now, it's this it's this singing and dancing and this combination of uh, um, uh, uh, European goth, European church music, which becomes church, you know, Southern church music, Irish folk songs, and 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 uh, uh, and blues, and, and these things that develop into into ragtime, which is which is which becomes the first pop, the first universally popular music, which you know, first rags with eighteen ninety two, right? Uh, um, and and so, what eliminates 
all of our leaders and all of the gatekeeper mentality is to, is to be mindful to, to remember and to, and, to, and to focus in on this most incredible internationally known, loved, and recognized art form was created by people who barely had the opportunity to learn to read, right? So it, this is not about your elitism. It is not about, it is not about, it, it, thank God for some level of inclusion. Thank God, because that's how this happened, right? That's how we have Louis Armstrong. That's how we have Duke Ellington. That, that's how we have Miles Davis. That's how we have these people, right? Now, um, so these things now that we think we can take for granted because we came from a very advanced high school program where we have a lot, we've learned a lot of music on YouTube, but I know more than you. you okay, great. Uh, uh, these people that created it didn't have any of that. So if that's what you're basing your value on, you've missed the point of the music. It's about humanity. It's about communication. And it is about excellence in whatever you have to share. You know, you think those people that gathered in Congo Square in 1817 weren't really serious about what they did? They had three hours a day to dance and sing? You think, you think they weren't really sure? They worked really hard to make the most out of that? Yeah, that's all they had. Then it was back to the fields where most people, you know, it's these things, uh, uh, even as I'm teaching and, and researching, it gives me perspective on, on, on uh, the values that we think uh, uh, should should define us, and helps me to, helps me to measure them against um, what was done for me to be able to be here, and how I can honor that going forward. That's great. That's great. One of the there was a video that uh, one of the recent videos I think that was posted. And you're holding that it's actually the Dean guitar that's that's behind you. And I love that post so much as far as like, you know, it it doesn't matter what type of, you know, instrument you have. Like you can it can be you can play whatever on whatever instrument. And I think that's just such a, a powerful reminder just because, you know, I, I always think of like people that play banjo and then for someone who maybe what doesn't know the history behind the banjo it's like they always think of like a country player where it's like the banjo is originally like an african instrument you know what i mean and it's like no you know, right. it's a... <laughs> <laughs> now it's somehow owned by the grand old opera you're like what well, happened yeah yeah you know so it's just and it's... then the way and then the more the most world's most foremost banjo players bela fleck he's from my buddy from new york mm. he, he lit He's not even a southerner. <laughs> he can't live there, but he's a transplant. Yeah, you know, so it's just, it's it's interesting, you know, where people want to, they just, they, like, everything has to be categorized to some way, shape, or form. And we're like, it's not, like, that's not healthy, you know? And it's like, it's one thing to identify a certain type of music, but it's another to to segregate and to, to put things in boxes in a really unhealthy manner, you know what sure. I mean? So I really, I really appreciate that post. And if, if you wanted to elaborate on anything, oh, sure. I, that. I, I love that. I love the story for that. Um, we have to remember though, that, that the, the isolation, um, categorization of music and, and, and styles and things that was for the purposes of marketing, right? We, we can sell this if we give it a label and promote that. And, and if we separate this from that, we can sell this, you know, and I came into the music business, uh, at, you know, at the pinnacle of the, you know, 
uh, of that entire record. She went and there was a section for everything in it. That way, they didn't have to, you know, they felt like they didn't have to fight through this big mass of people. You could separate people in the, it, you know, it's like a lion in the jungle, you know, a lion on the open plains. Well, I can separate, I can put the sheep, I put the gazelles here and the zebras here. It's, it's easier to pick off, you know. Uh, and so, and, and, and while that's you know that's, that's extreme, you know what I mean. And so um, that should have no relevance or no place in between people and music. So uh, I have always played some form of hollow body, right? So this I've been playing it since I was a kid. This is the guitar that I designed for the Angelico, it's the Mark Whitfield model, and I'm extremely proud of it. And it, even this is, is, is a huge compromise because it's a small body guitar, but I'm extremely proud of it. So. Um, uh, you know, uh, but we're going back about ten years. Uh, you know, I spent maybe eight years, eight or nine years on the road with Chris Bodie, uh, and you know, he he brought me in the band. He, he hired me um, it, as he was just starting to come onto the scene as you know, as a solo artist and trying to come up. Uh, he had he had a, a very interesting, great jazz band. It was myself and Billy Kills and Billy Childs and James Genius, and. Uh, He's not. He's he's a, a good musician, but he's not a not a, 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 a you know dedicated advanced straight ahead player, and so he he hired us to sort of help create a jazz aesthetic for him to be, you know begin to create this persona for himself, which he's done really well. You know, he and I got me pretty close, and he was extremely generous and, and a good guy for me. It was great, uh, um, uh, but. Uh, um, this, you know, our performances at, by design, by his design, became more and more of a show. You know, more and more, less of a jazz gig and more of a, as he was cultivating his audiences, you know, more and more of a, of a traveling Broadway show guy. You know, and there are people that literally come to see 50, 60 shows a year. And we played the same music every night, you know, they just love it, you know. Um, anyway, uh, um, the end of the, the end of every concert was this Tour de Force drum solo. Billy Kilson is just this amazing, you know, drums, drum, drummer. One of the first guys I met in Berkeley, one of my oldest friends. Um, great drummer, a huge, a huge showstopper. We had musical cues to play at a few, at a few, few uh, sections to get to kind of set it off. And then we knew to just kind of step out of the way and let him shine. He didn't need any help or any interference. And he wasn't really cool about people messing with him. We were on the road, and his birthday was coming up, and I was thinking, man, what can I do to really wish my big birthday? I know. Fuck up his drum solo. That's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna just I'm gonna mess this shit up. <laughs> I was probably checking on the tour bus thinking this is gonna be a great idea. Right? So all right. So we're somewhere we pull up to you know some random truck stop in the tour bus, you know, and out of nowhere, like it shouldn't even have been there was a guitar set, like a, a building, just guitar set. And I just wandered in there. And this, not in this form, just playing with bad with bad electronics and appointments and all that. Hanging out the door, I didn't understand my brand new for on sale for ninety dollars. I said, like, this is perfect. Not even playing, right? I just bought it, walked out. I hit, I hit it in the bus so no one would see it. And during the drum solo, I sort of very carefully backed off stage and I put that thing up put on the strap, and I was running out of the stage, slid across the stage to my knees, doing a windmill, knocked over a mic stand, just trashed the whole thing, right? <laughs> He's pissed off the crowd's laughing, and he starts laughing, happy birthday, right? The whole thing, right? <laughs> well, I saw it, you know, so I'm like, you know what? Let's plug it in and see how it sounds. And all I can tell you is, they they made their best effort to make the cheapest guitar and the shittiest guitar they could make, and they failed. For 90 bucks, they sold me a really nice, fine B. But 
it's a flying V. What am I going to do with it, right? Uh, and so I just put it in the closet. And I had uh, um, made a poor alcohol-fueled decision to get some tattoos once uh, uh, that were bad. And I met a guy who's a great artist. And so uh, uh, he, he, I said, like, man, do something. Fix it. You know, and yeah, I love what he did. But he also uh, uh, is, 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 you know, traditional artist, paints and, and, uh, and makes things, but, you know, and he said, man, do you, have, do you have a guitar around that I could just mess with and, maybe, you know, do something? I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, take this slide, B. So he sent these adventures, and he, his whole thing is he, he uses it calls the hive, but it's about extended family. So it's his it's, it's hive. And so he, 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 he did, I said, I love this. So then I got to try this place to bounce my, you know, put, some, yeah, uh, put a new bridge and chassis and, 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 and machines on it. And uh, I, you know, he, he matched on the hive uh, here to the guitar. I, play, I did an exhibition during this art show. And, and, uh, I just decided it was time to see what would happen if I forced myself to break down some of the barriers I've allowed people to put up for my creativity and my creative expression. And I love what's happening. Uh, it's affecting, uh, it, it, you know, freedom is, is pervasive and just like the lack of it, right? And so uh, feeling free. Uh, to, to express and try and do things. You know, I remember uh, being at an SNL after party uh, one night and uh, John Schofield's wife was there because uh, 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 their daughter was at the time was involved. With, oh, and she's friends with Christoph, the actor from, uh, uh, anyway. And so she was there and Skull, Skull was on tour and we were talking to Susan. She's like, like, I can't believe this. John's on tour and Telecaster. I don't know what's wrong with my world. You know <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when, and, you know, and, I, and when I saw him was theater when you were in, I was like, man, Scarlett was so impressed. The wife was like, I don't know what's wrong with my life. John's up to him and telling him. He was like, really? You know, uh, uh, uh. And he's like, he's like, I just have no freedom. I was like, screw it. I'm going on tour to tell him. You know, <laughs> you know, you'd be, you'd be surprised how, how, it's, how easy it is to box yourself in with, you know, with your own, you know, uh, uh, and so. I think we were glad to be joking about it. I was just like, man, what would happen if I just started going to some of my favorite jazz clubs and played a tune or two on the flying V? Well, we'll see. So I started doing it. Um, it's music. I play the same way. It's just, it's, you know, it's, uh, but it's the, it's the attitude and the freedom that, that spurs, uh, uh, spurs cre uh, start, it, it inspires creativity and, 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 and it also creates connections. There's one that, you know, the, the thing you're talking about, the gatekeeper mentality and, and all of that. I'll be, you know, I'm almost 60 years old and I'm associated with the legends of this music. Uh, and more associated with that, with that part, that attitude of the music than a sort of open-minded, free-spirited, come one, come all thing. Uh, and, and this idea of inclusion and, and open-mindedness and, and, and uh, searching for ways to you know, to find different stories to tell, invites people to join in in a wonderfully beautiful way, and I'm, and that does more than all the preaching in the world. Actually, just living differently. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, listen, and I I've stumbled into this like an accident. So it's not like I came with some great philosophical approach and I'm out here living it. I just like I'm trying this, and but the effect of it is. I'm saying, wow, like I tried something pretty cool. I didn't know it was cool. I just tried something. I was actually kind of scared to do it. And and uh, um, it's taken me, it's had some beautiful things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, 
and, and so I, great. You know, I, I, what else can I say? Uh, um, yeah. You know, I, and you see, we we live in a in a weird time. You know, I, you know, uh, um, I'm an older person raised by very old people. But you know, my parents should have, would have been my grand my friends' grandparents' age, and so. Uh, traditional kind of old school in my mindset. We're living at a time where people are challenging some of the most, you know, basic tenets of the way we, we look, look at ourselves. But at the same time, we're also allowing other aspects of our lives to become extremely controlled and categorized and rigid. You know, I went to a place and I didn't know which, which bathroom to go in because there were men and women in this one and men and women in that one. Somebody's wife was in there. I just, I, you know, but but then someone said, "Well, you can't play jazz." I'm like, "Really? I can go to the bathroom with my with my friend's wife?" I'm like, "Yeah, you fucking mind." Like, yeah, like what? Oh, I stopped. I was like, "Man, I can't go in there. Your wife is in there." He's like, "Well, it's you know what I'm doing." Got a problem? I just don't need to know that. But you know what? Yeah. I, but we're living in a world with that, with that, you know. So I, I just feel like, wow, it, it, some, I, and I, I always say this it's not everybody's responsibility to be, to be aware of everything. But when a person becomes aware of something that they think they can do it a little better, a little bit differently, you should do it. Mm. And so I'm like, well, I got, I got no issue with all that, but I got an issue with this. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to do this. You know what I mean? So that's my contribution. And, and so if I can be free, maybe this an open mind and experiment. And be unapologetic about it. Perhaps so. Good. Maybe that'll lead someone else to something great. And that's that's where I'm at. That. Yeah, it reminds me of um, uh, Jack Pearson. Uh, he's what uh, he's one of those folks I, I discovered online. Like one of my favorite players, and it, mm -hmm. it's so amazing because he plays on these cheap squires, you know. And he's like loves them, you know. And he was just like he was like, he was talking about he was in a guitar center or something, and. And uh, there's the guy's trying to get him to buy like these like three thousand or whatever the guitars. He's like, "What about that one up there?" And it's like this candy apple red, and it's like <laughs> two a hundred dollars. And the guy's like, "That's the worst one in the store." And he's like, "I want that one." <laughs> but he plays like he's like he's, he's an incredible player, like you know, toward the and, yeah, brothers. Yeah, great, and, you know, you know, you know the guitarist Nierfelder. The name Nierfelder, he is um, Keon Harold, and, 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 he, and, a lot, and he's just a, a very, very, you know, uh, 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 he's a, he, you know, very, a mainstay of the New York jazz and, 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 and you know, seeing it. But he plays a $200 Mexican strap that he found in the 80s in some bad guitar shop. And it sounds like it was made by Leo Fender himself. You know, it's just. I was like, here. He's like, yeah, that's right. He says, I got this guitar when I was on the 11. You know, like, whatever. It's cheap. It's the cheapest strap. And I love it. I think he might have put some new pickups on that. I guess he did. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just, it's, it's the instrument. It's not, you know, it, 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 it's, it, sometimes when you find something, I'll say something that very few people see, right? So this is one of the Ivan has lawsuit boxes. It's one of, it's one of the, the original 75 that they got to put them on the map, right? They made they, in the 70s, Ivan has made 50 or 75 guitars that are exact high quality replicas of Gibson, and each one is different. And wow. so, this is the exact dimension of an L5. It was wow. made with no pickup and no pickup, right? And I was in Seattle, I wanted a guitar, and we walked in, the, and this guy it was an Adam Paper. My dad and I walked in there, and it's hanging up on the wall, and I was like, I want that. This uh, and he had made, the guy had made, um, you can see this, the wooden, like a cherry, like a, a, a cherry, like an over rosewood uh, 
uh, almost like a doorknob. He made it. He made it into a, a or something would go on a dresser drawer, right? He made that for a volume knob, but he had a wooden pick on to match that. Um, and so I replaced it with this, and I got a, a, a nice uh, Demarcio Hobart run. Wow. But when I met George Benson in '87 at Pluto, he said, "Man, what's that guitar?" He's, and he tried to buy it for me. I was like, this is all I got. I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> 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 These guitars are priceless, man. Yeah. Uh, and, it was, and I bought it for $600 off this dude in a, you know, in a violin shop. You know, it, it, you know, and it wasn't even meant, it, it, it wasn't even meant to be great. It was just, you know, it's just, it, it, it's, an, it's an exact replica. Uh, and, and it's, uh, um, when I signed to deal with Gibson, I was, I endorsed them for a while in the 90s. They made an L5 for me. And they said, so how do you want it made? <laughs> 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 so, oh my God. First of all, oh. you should have seen the look on the dude's face. He's like, how dare you bring a Gibson copy of the Gibson store and ask me to copy that for you? And I said, well, look, this is the deal. You either copy that or I'm not playing. <laughs> <laughs> and that is freedom of power. <laughs> <laughs> so on the cover of my true blue record, Seventh Avenue Stroller, that Gibson is a copy of that guitar. Wow. <laughs> and this guitar is better. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, I don't even have that guitar anymore. That's great. Oh, that's there amazing. That is amazing. It's also inspirational, too, because it's like it, it shows when I, when I see like folks where they play in these guitars that they're not like the. You know, the highest tier or whatnot, but, but, you know, and, and it just, to me, it just, it's an inspiration as far as like anybody can start to learn this. Cause I would imagine, you know, at least for me, for me, like, like learning guitar and whatnot, I mean, it was very much like a pickup, pickup, put down situation because it's yeah. like, you know, there's a very much a, a, a mental game where it's like, man, there's so much, there's so much I need to learn. There's so many great players out there. Like I have, like there's there's certain ways that I'm articulating things that don't work. Like I don't have a whole lot of money in my pocket. Like how am I going to do this? You know what I mean? So, so it's just one of those things where it's just like when when you see these when you see these artists that have like guitars like that and like you know, like the the Jack Whites of the world. It's like oh I love like these like random vintage guitars like i want to fight with it like i want to fight with the instrument you know and just count yeah, yeah. Well, that's a really it's very very inspiring you know where it's just like yeah, yeah anybody can learn this if you really just you know stick to it so. you know fighting with a vintage, a vintage instrument is to me it's like it's akin to uh taming a wild horse like it's not a constant fight but it's not going to give it up easily like you that guitar makes you earn the connection Right. Um, and all these things we're saying, uh, there's no point in me being a hypocrite. Like, you know, when I, uh, um, that guitar, that Gibson, I loved it. And we were on tour in Europe and a guy, the, a, a, the driver that the promoter hired in Germany, he, uh, and he got excited and wanted to help. And I had run it and got out, got out of the band and ran to the hotel and came back out. And he handed me my guitar case. He had dropped it and uh, and snapped the headstock off. He didn't tell me. Oh no! And so I went in, went to bed, woke up to practice for a sound check, and the guitar was in two pieces. Uh, oh my goodness! So you know, I, uh, Gibson made a new neck for me, but in doing that, they split the top in three places. The guitar just never sounded the same. Right. My deal with them was was up, and I was disappointed with the whole thing. Hmm. Uh, and I sold it to a collector in Japan. 
I, I met this luthier named Stephen Marchioni in 1998. He made me the greatest guitar I've ever touched. And I played George Benson, the Angelicals, like was it the originals and all that. Yeah. Uh, but this is literally the nicest guitar. If there was a Stradivarius of guitars, this is it. You know, uh, um, and uh, it also requires some tape. Mm. But um, what you can create, let's face it, I don't care how great or how, how customized your Toyota Stellar Super is, a guy in a well made Ferrari is just going to leave you in his rear view, right? And so that's what this is. But collectors and so forth have, have, have uh, forced luthiers into taking these guitars out of the hands of musicians and putting them into the hands of play, uh, you know, collectors. Like I have a student, you know, who bought um, bought a Marchioni, a, a refurbished one that I used to own and gave it back. Uh, and he was like, you know, you know, and these guitars now, I think this one was sixteen thousand. When he made it for me in '98, and, and I, you know, he paid, I paid half to that, you know, and, wow. and made a deal where he could, you know, where I'd make a little money off the ones he sold, you know, whatever kind of offset it. But you know, um, somebody who had that kind of money sitting around would buy a fifteen thousand dollar guitar from him and then turn around and sell it for twenty grand, you know, that kind of thing. He's like, wait a minute, I sat over, you know. I, I, you know, I, I breathed in wood shavings and, and you know, and for you know a year to make this thing, and, and you're and you're and you're, and you're buying and selling them like trading, like it's a commodity. Right. And well, you know what? Forget that. Like mm. now, it costs thirty grand. Buy and sell that. You know, and so okay, they do, but none of us can. Like, who's going to take out a, a home, a home, a home equity line of a line of credit for a guitar, right? To go out and play jazz music. It's not. I can go play the Rolling Stones with this thing, right? And so, you know, I mean, I could, but, but um, you know, I mean, first, I, have, I don't think I've touched it in six months. And the first chord is in tune, you know, and I mean, you know, it's just, I, and it's just, it's just a gorgeous instrument. Um, uh, but, you know, um, uh, it's got, you can't travel with it, where, you know, it doesn't, you can't take, you can't carry it on the plane. <laughs> I don't, I, I sort of even check it. I won't let it out of my sight. Uh, so, uh, so I wanted. So and then. So when D'Angelo said, "Well, man, you know, we want you to do a deal with us. What are you going to play? You know, we can we can sort of do something like you and like you did, like you Marchioni and blah blah blah. You know, and 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 I, well, and, and, and mind you, I'm saying all this because there's going to be a lot of folks who see this and go, well, wait, dude, you don't play that, all. Dean. You play a fifteen thousand dollar Marchioni. You know, but the point is this." I decided if I was going to play another guitar, right, and, and represent that guitar, because let's say whether you mean it, whether you intend to or not, uh, um, you, you know, as, as a professional musician, you inspire, you know, you, you influence young musicians to play. You, they want to play the instruments you have, you know, whatever. whatever. It's, that's it. That, that's, it's just a natural thing. So I'm like, well, you know what? Let's do this. Let's let's create the highest quality instrument we can, make it affordable, and, and, and something that, that young guitar players can use for more than just one thing. Because when I went to Berkeley, I mean, I couldn't afford to have four guitars. I need the guitar I could play all the time, you know, and all my songs and all my gigs and all those things. And and so, uh, and I don't, you know, I'm not a fan of 335s. I feel like I, I, it's, it, it, 
you know, bodies this big the next this big. You know? So, uh, but I, but I understand why people play. It's a thin body, it doesn't feed back and gives you all sorts of toe drops. So we designed this. It's not that expensive. It's sure, it's twenty two hundred dollars, right? Uh, uh, you know, uh, um, it, it's, it's high quality, fully hollow, ebony, ebony. You know, hopefully, it's a, it's a great instrument, and it's something where a kid sees, hey, this one feels, you know, or, or hey, buddy, I'm gonna play. Should I get the, you know, can I, what, what do I, what I, this guitar works for me. Not like, uh, oh yeah, tell your dad to take out a, to sell a family car and email Steve <laughs> Marchioni or, or, or Benedetto or, you know, it's, it, and George Benson told me an interesting thing. And Joe Pat said the same thing. He said, you know, in the old days, when they were young, when you, when, you know, buying a D'Angelico from John D'Angelico was, 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 that's what you did when you had, when you, you were now in the upper echelon of musicians. You were, you know, playing in studios, you were, you were making records, you, you were, you know, amongst the best. You played, um, um, you played Epiphone or, or, you know, or Gibson or whatever it was, and, and, and that's it, you know, and so, uh, that's the way I feel about guitar like that. You know, you, you get to be successful and you can, you know, you want to treat yourself to, you know, to, to, to the Lamborghini of guitars, there it is, you know. But you want a great instrument that, that you can play. I don't. I don't suggest that you go around searching for demons, right? Because <laughs> I, I can't promise you're going to find what I found. Mir Felder certainly is going to tell you to go out and scour the world for every Mexican strat you can find. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we found a diamond in the rough. But I didn't tell you to go to the, buy one of these or some other guitar like that. That's made. That's made for you. That, that made to give you all the advantages you need without breaking the bank. And I think that's important. Uh, you know, it's funny. You mentioned Joe, my interaction with Joe Pass. Um, when I was in high school in Seattle, I was still playing. I, I played a guitar in the jazz band, but I also played uh, um, bass in the orchestra. So we took an orchestra trip to Disneyland in Amsterdam, right? Uh, um, to be in some high school orchestra festival. And, you know, I was all, you know, at this point, I'm a, I'm a cool jazz guitar kid now, right? So I was too cool for orchestra kids. So my free time, I wandered off on my own. And I got in the teacup land, and and uh, um, I was like, oh, this is music. Right? Uh, I walked into this little club, this little club setting in Disneyland. And there was this dude sitting on stage in a chair, eyes closed, playing a guitar, polytonics, which Joe has, playing, uh, playing an hour of two guns music, middle of the day. It turned out that uh, Disneyland at that time had to deal with the musician machine once a week. Uh, they would have these performances by you know great musicians become in Disney and just play jazz, you know. And, wow. and it wasn't like a ticket sale or better anything. If you were just there, you could go see it, you know. There was Joe Bass, like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so I was 15, I didn't speak to her. I didn't know what I was gonna say. I only had a couple of those Pablo records, you're like uh, um uh, 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 um that you guys in or virtual virtual number one yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I had a couple of those, but it, and he was instantly recognizable. The dude, you know, he had he had uh, uh, kind of the bald spot and the mustache, and you know, he had he looked that way for forty years. So you know, so definitely <laughs> him. You know, and so all right, so uh, uh, Joe Pat's great. Got back to got back to home, and I was on my stand. So I tried to learn how to play solo guitar, you know, and then they, they enrolled in Berkeley the next year, and he gave a master class in a little crappy music store called Worlds. It was on the corner of. Uh, Mass I had a new restaurant, Blackway from Berkeley. Mm. And he was he was playing a gig in town somewhere. And clearly part of the deal was extra bucks. Give him a master, but he was cranky, he didn't want to be there. 
And I'm sure that was based on the fact that he'd been there before. You would expect, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but a bunch of dumb kids were all sitting around. Nobody had any questions. You know, we're not we're not really playing jazz yet. It's Joe Pass. Like we need somebody, we need somebody a whole lot closer. You know, so one kid asked me like, "Hey, you know, what sort of strings do you use?" He's like, "Come on, man, whatever." <laughs> Like, so we're, we're beyond that. What do you want? What do you want? And I said, um, I have a question about technique. You know, uh, what? How do you? What's your approach to conquering? You know, to mastering uh, um, physical challenges? And he said, Okay, well, some things you you, you just you, you can't do. Or you see that it's going to require so much effort and focus is not worth doing. So then I try to find another way to accomplish the same thing. He said, it's not about a cop-out. It's just my hand is my hand, you know. Uh, I said, okay. So I said, and then I looked around. So then what do you do when you get tired of the way, you know, do you ever get bored of your own playing? Like, what do you do? And he said, well... If I can write guitar in my playing, I put the guitar in the case, put the case in the closet, and go off for two weeks. And when I come back, that shit sounds amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, then he, and then he laughed and he said, actually, you know, it's just, he said, uh, uh, you never stop studying, learning, listening, or appreciating your music. He said, if you're bored with what you're playing, you're doing the right thing. That means you have worked that that you've worked that information to, you know, to do its limit. Now go get some new information. Mm. Learn a new song. Transcribe someone else's solo. Like, if you're bored with what you're doing, but that's the end, then your problem is you think what you're doing is all is the greatest that there is to be out there. He says, I got news for you, didn't There's a mailman out there who plays guitar on the side just waiting to cut you, you know, <laughs> at a jam session. Like, you, should, you know, it's mm. great. So don't, don't, you know, that's what it is. And he's like, oh, I got to go. Well, I hate you kids. And so now we cut to five, you know, four years later, I've graduated. I'm in New York, back at home in New York. And I had uh, started playing at the Blue Note. Back then in 87, they didn't have that weekend late night series. They had a six week, a six night a week after hours band that played when the, the main band was finished. Hmm. George, Joe, and they would sometimes have a double, you know, two bands playing at the same time, you know, so... Joe Pass was playing solo guitar was with George Shearer and, and his quintet. You know, two sets, it was, you know, one set, one, two, twice a night for six months. So the second, you know, I heard, that's what I heard the first night, you know, things, right? And, and he said, you know, I, you know, I think he's going to remember me. I'm that dude who asked those two questions that were is four years ago. We're tight. Me and Joe like this. So it's no, such a dumbass. Right, so, the next, so, so, night, so the second night I get there, time to catch him on his break, right? He's upstairs with and uh, I'm going to walk up to his dressing room and knock on the door and ask for a guitar lesson. Mm. Yeah, exactly that. Right. <laughs> right. So, knock, knock, at, you know, I knock on the door and I get the feeling it's all of a sudden I, I'm like, oh, this is really stupid. Okay, anyway, too late. He opens the door and it's him and a guy who might as well have been Joe Pesci, right? And they are smoking big cigars and drinking and they are dropping more F-bombs than, than the movie casino, right? I'm just, oh, 
<laughs> not that I care about that. It's just I know I'm about to walk the gauntlet. Right? Like, right. Oh, oh, God. Oh, oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And the other he's like, what the fuck do you want? Right? Like, wow. Who, who? You know, like, you know you don't know me. I don't do What the fuck? You know, and, and, yeah. and, and, and so now I got to say something, right? Uh, so I'm like, uh, oh, sir, my name is Mark Richard. I'm, I'm a guitar player. And I was wondering if I take a lesson. I got fucking lesson. I fucking break. What the fuck is fucking fuck, 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 right? And I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and then it's funny. So, but I see it's a relief, right? Because I'm just like, okay, I'm just eating. He's allowed to hear going to, and, and this never happened, right? But then his buddy says, hey, Joe, let the little dude in. This is going to be great. This will be fucking hilarious. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, you know, don't let the little dude in. Like, this is no. Yeah. Right? So the next thing I know, I'm sitting down, holding the doors shut behind me, and he puts his, uh, his, his, his you know, like his, his JP20, you know, his eye in my, in my lap. He's like, yeah, play something. Okay, right. So, <laughs> all right. So I just had, I was working on this tune, something I was writing, right? And it just, I just started playing that sound, kind of like a standard, but no, it wasn't. And so three or four bars in, he's like, wait a minute, stop. What fucking song is this? And I'm like, uh, 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 it's this song I, I wrote. He's like, how the fuck can I judge how you fucking play? You don't fucking play a song I fucking know. That's a fair question. <laughs> fair question. But, you, you, but there's probably four or five extra words in there I didn't need. You're like, that's all me, right? So, okay, so then I'm like, fair. So I started playing the song, uh, We'll Be Together. You know, yeah, I get through it, and, and, and dude, I'm doing my best, Joe Pass. Like, I get, get some bass lines going, a few little things, you know. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, stop me that. He's like, all right, all right look. You know, he's like, I'm not giving you a lesson. I'm like, fucking great. He's like, but you know what? He's like, uh, he said, you obviously know how, you know, how, how the guitar works. He's like, just keep practicing. You'll be fine. And he said, the other thing is, next time you come and talk to somebody and get a lesson, make sure you sound like them. Don't come in here playing like George Benson. I'm Joe Pass. He was kind of messing with me, but I was, you know, but he got kind of in. Yeah, you know, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. And then it's kind of laughing. I was like, yeah, get out of here, kid. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, <laughs> went right back to it. But he, but you know, he, but he, and, you know, he's like, and just stick around and watch and watch me, watch my set, you know. And, and so I'm like, okay, great. I made it. I still got my scalp. Right? Like, I'm like, okay, you know what? Like, All right, all right. So I, so I'm standing out of the downstairs. He goes on and starts playing and. He didn't even speak to the crowd. He just sat down in the chair and starts playing We'll Be Together Again, right? The song that I played. And he played a 10 to 12 minute brilliant series of inventions on this song. Wow. And at the top of every section, he would look up at me and say, try this and try this. And it was the most amazing masterclass I have ever experienced. Other than sitting face to face with George Benson at his house, weeks playing, doing things, it was just, and it was, it was amazing. It was, and, and, and imagine this now—he's playing for his audience, and they were yeah. and teaching me while he's doing it, mm. you know. And 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 uh, um, and and then from that, you know, and we and we got to be friends. I would see him, you know, friendly, you know, and, and yeah. spoke highly of me, and he'd come see me play sometimes, and and I recognized in that moment that what's the most important thing 
about uh, interacting and interfacing and meeting and, and, and older musicians and, 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 and folks who have things you want to learn and all that is if you allow them to teach you, they'll teach you. Mm. Um, if you, if you uh, instruct them on what it is you want them to show you, they, old school cats won't even bother. Mm. But if someone agrees to do that, think of how foolish you are. You don't know anything. And before you let me teach, you're telling me what I, what you want me to show you. Right. Uh, that may be great in terms of you learning a specific thing. But what I have to offer is not about what you want to learn. What I have to offer is what I'm good at. Whatever mm. it is I'm good at, that's what you need to learn from me. Mm. And if you don't want to learn that, find somebody else to learn from. Because somebody else is going to be better at teaching you whatever it is. You know what I mean? And so yeah. I didn't tell him what I wanted to know. Or I, I, I played. He told me to watch. I watched. I learned. I was better for it. Mm. And, I, and I applied that uh, um, to all of those kinds of situations. And I'm really careful to very delicately take my students in that way. And I say it that way because I realize now our social consciousness is such that people are often uh, um, convinced that they know what they need. And even if they don't, it's their mistake to make. And it is. But it doesn't mean I have to be complicit in the operation, right? <laughs> like, you know, so I'm very gently uh, um, and, and uh, you know, and sort of lovingly, if I can, affectionately, encourage young people to be more apprentice-like, because uh, you can go do your thing, but if you're gonna, if you're gonna waste your time coming to stay with me, at least let me show you what I know. Great. One of the la one of the last questions I had for you was, um, what's your advice to, you know, I feel like. Uh, you know, being a session musician or, you know, being a session guitar player or whatnot, I feel like there's so many, like, it's difficult, uh, right, for, for, for a lot of people out there as far as oh. just really use like, where that is like, yes, this is what I do. I play music. I'm, I'm a guitar player. And, and then I feel like it's because in that, in that notion in a lot of different, you know, areas or cities or whatever, just businesses where I feel like that kind of is, it's difficult to live, to have a, yeah. like a living for, you know, sure. um, what type, what advice would you give to those kind of like those guitar players that are session players that are kind of getting into it? And this is what they want to do, but they realize on a realistic sense, it's like, man, it's almost like I have to do three jobs just to, to try to get my dream, you know? Well, you know, yeah, you have to be honest in your uh, understanding of history mm -hmm. so that you're not misguided or, or uh, misinformed about the trajectory of the lives of the people that you admire. Mm. So if you know what, what, you, what your heroes and mentors and so forth went through to get to be who they are and do what they do, that's, that can inform you, uh, uh, you know, fill in the blanks for you about what it's going what's gonna, what, what to require, what it will entail. You know, my brother, when he was uh, stationed in Florida, Vietnam, he remembers seeing Jimmy up oh, before Vietnam, he remember seeing Jimmy Hendrix playing, you know, I could Tina Turner's back. And he was the rhythm guitar player. Well, if Tina Turner didn't like being around, I, why the hell would Jimmy Hendrix like being around? I? Mm -hmm. But you know what I mean? Like, 
I think the time doesn't strike me as having been a great guy. But but Jimmy Hendrix is there. Well, you know, like uh, uh, if Jim Jimmy Hendrix was a side musician before he was Jimmy Hendrix, right? So uh, you know, I, I worked on Wall Street at Bear Stearns. I worked for a stockbroker before. You know, I, I was that was my first record there. Like you, you do what it is you have to do to do what you love. Or you compromise doing what you love to turn that into how you survive. Right. But whatever, but whatever, whatever decision you make, um, the you know the the answer to the question how do I how do I make it work is never that difficult. The difficult. I'm not saying the work in that isn't difficult, but the answer to it is clear. Right. What, what's hard to deal with is—is is that really what I have to do to do this? Mm. You know, like when I when I first moved to New York, I, you know, uh, August of 1987, when I came back when I came back from school. My my uh, girlfriend at the time she worked in bank. I worked at Wall Street. I taught guitar and accordion and piano to seven year olds at local music school. I you know I I did a gig once with with a guy who's older drummer who's who's uh, his gig network was uh, medium security prison. And so I did one because we went in there to play and there was a chick singer, a hot girl, and she was wearing you know, fishnets and all that, and all the dudes ignored her. And somebody yelled, get that little guitar player back here. And I uh, <laughs> played prison. I was like, ah! <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> well, that won't work for me. All right, so. Uh, uh, yeah, so you know, I, I just um, you know, I did some of everything um, so that I, you know, I, I mean that that gig I played at the Blue Note six nights. We made fifteen dollars each. We played from one a.m. to four a.m. Tuesday to Sunday. Myself and Philip Harper and Justin Robinson and uh, uh, Randy. So you know, guys, you want to have great. You know, we went on, we went on to have great careers. We made fifteen dollars a night. Like James Genus, the great James Genus, who plays bass with Herbie Hancock and and and, uh, um, and uh, for a set that live for the last thirty years. You know, he's my he's my best friend. We you know, we met on the Blue Day stage at that jam session in 19, in September '87. We we played we played at a local high school once for the uh, Jersey City the Jersey City entrance the, the Jersey City competition for girl for young women to enter the Miss Black America competition. And uh, we still, I still remember, like we we had to, we had to back up these kids. And it, it was the talent, it was the talent portion of a beauty competition for high school kids from the hood. This shit was amazing. <laughs> oh god, oh god, oh god, dude, we we do what we had to do. But you know, uh, oh, we made games. But you know, uh, um, we worked odd jobs. Like you do what it is, um, because. Uh, uh, you look at, forget, you know, uh, social media for, for regular people. We look at media for superstars, you know, uh, um, and, ex, you know, with, with, with few except There's a reason why when we, even, even people who are hyper aware of the careers of pop stars across all, all genres, if you start listing people who have been relevant and, and, and consistently active from 1990 to today, the list is 50 people or less. 
in all styles of music. I mean, relevant as as a list. It's just you know. So those people have to, if they're great and successful and popular, they got to get it all while they can, because it ain't gonna last. What we do, I do, I do this until my body fails, right? You know, and, and, and you know, I'm working on a project now with George Benson and so on. You know, George is gonna, he's eighty one. You know, I mean, you know, and so. Uh, um, uh, you have to decide if you're going to work on something you can do forever or if you're taking a shot to make it big, you know, uh, uh, but and be okay with what that is. You know, you have to follow your dream and everything else, be smart about it. You know, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, if you're a session player, there's lots of sessions to be sessions to be done, but you got to be honest with yourself. You know, studio sessions, there aren't really recording studios anymore. Right, so keep playing sessions, but man, I've learned how to record at home. So now you do, you know. I mean, I'm an analog dude, you know. I, 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 if I can learn, so if you want, if you want to play a session, you know, like just because. So I, you know, one of the things I do with my Instagram, I post a lot of video clips of me playing on records for other people from my home. Uh, I do that. To, to promote the project or because I think it's cool. What I didn't expect was that that that's showing people everywhere that I can do that. So now I get all these gigs to, you know, people are like, hey, we plan to do the whole thing. It's a, it's wow. a way, you know, it, it's, it's a boost in my career that I didn't even expect. Right. Uh, um, but my point is, sure, I have, the, you know, a recognized name and I had the advantage of that. But that, that's okay, you know, you can make it for yourself if you if you're good if you're into recording record yourself here you know uh, uh, um, you know the right the right right group of hashtags and and, and, and a good and, and some and some and some focused networking can get you involved with people who are doing good things you know but you got to do that sitting around you know waiting for it to happen or you know like it's never helped anyone you know and so it's hard it's always hard but if it wasn't hard, it'd be hard. If, it, if doing it wasn't hard, there'd be so many people doing it, it'd still be hard. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's how they force go. If doing it wasn't hard, <laughs> but it's really, that's what it is. That's you know? what it is. That's what it is. That's I gotta go. I know I've been talking forever. You got anything else you want to ask? No, no, no. That was the main thing. Firstly, foremost, you know, Mark uh, Whitfield. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. I, I really appreciate your time. You dropped a lot of gems here, so uh, thank you so much. You. I appreciate it. Hey, man, it's my pleasure meeting you. Congratulations on a hundred episodes, and uh, I wish you a thousand more and a lot more success. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. With it. Well, there you have it, folks. This is Daryl uh, from the 440 Guitar Podcast. Uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.